0: It's the end of the
1: world as we know it, and I feel
0: fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, first takes an aeroplane, many fruits, not afraid. I have a hermogene, listen to yourself, third world, but you don't need something to your own head. Speed it up and I believe got no excuse. The ladder for the clatter with the fear of fight down tight. Fire in the fire, resistance of the gang, from the government for hiring a combat site. But it was not coming in a hurry,
2: but you're going to down your neck. The border traffic that low plane, Overflow, overflow, corner, completely the world, and you know me, to your heart, tell me what's the rhythm, and the rhythm the right. Use patriotic, patriotic, it, fight, right, feeling pretty It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it.
1: Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom.
2: And bloom. Hey,
1: friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a powerful paragon of patriotism in a pretty petulant world. <laughs> I'm Joel MD, also a known. A lot of peas. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm lucky I didn't, you know, spit all over myself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I will attest that you did not. Good. <laughs> I'm Joel MD,
1: also known as Doctor Bones of Doom and Bloom where you'll find videos, podcasts, and other kinds of great stuff, on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a man on a mission, and that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster.
2: Absolutely, and I'm Amy Alton. I'm also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife.
1: And the hostess with the is the blonde bombshell with a terrific set of morals.
2: That's right.
1: That's right. Together, we are the watchers <laughs> on the wall, and we watch it all for you. To help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a larcenous llama, our attorney says don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this.
2: All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's survival medicine hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or... Provider patient relationship exists or is implied between the host and listeners, Dr. Bones and Nursing. We strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available.
1: That's right, but we're here to help if it isn't. What do you think of that? <laughs> yes. But when the zombie apocalypse arrives, will you know what to do when somebody gets sick or injured? You know, you can. You can prove to the world that you got more sense than a package of olive pits by learning what to do for injuries and illness when a disaster hits. While you're at it, doesn't it just make common sense, really folks, to get some supplies and maybe a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge you're getting? I sure think so. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster. And they're designed by yours truly, An Honest to gosh medical doctor and hers truly an advanced registered nurse practitioner Compare our kits for contents quality and cost with anybody else's stuff Or just ask anybody who's ever bought one of our kits And you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage (laughs) Hey, what's the stuff, McDuff? We learn as much from you as you do from us, so connect with us It's easy, here's Nurse Amy to tell you how
2: It is so easy Just send us an email to drbonespodcast at aol.com. That's drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can also send us a Twitter at Prepper Show.
1: A tweet, I think is what it's called.
2: Yeah. All these newfangled words.
1: Newfangled. All right.
2: (laughs) But you can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. You can also join our Facebook group. Which is fantastic because we have lots and lots of people who talk amongst themselves, ask questions, and answer it for each other.
1: Lots of good information there.
2: Absolutely. Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Our YouTube channel has hundreds, hundreds of videos.
1: Well, more than a hundred at least. More than a hundred. <laughs>
2: Almost, well, we're really getting up there. Yeah, we are. But anyway, they're educational and sometimes they're fun to watch. But the channel is Dr. Bones Nurse Amy.
1: By the way, check out our articles in leading magazines like Survival Quarterly, American Survival Guide, Backwoods Home, Prepare, Survivalist, a Sur- Survivor's Edge, Survivor's Prepper, Edge, Prepper right. Shooter, Shooter, well, all over the place. And of course, in links from a thousand great preparedness websites throughout the internet. Okay. Well, you know what? I want to talk a little bit today about penetrating trauma, knife and bullet wounds, things like that.
2: Scary stuff.
1: That's right. Now, knife and bullet wounds are different than, say, uh, an industrial accident in that you're likely going to be in an area where a hostile action is occurring or has occurred. Mm -hmm. Now, the first and most important goal of the medic is self-preservation. I have to emphasize that because becoming the next casualty doesn't do anybody any good especially yourself so don't attempt to render aid unless you have abolished all threats to your own life firefight this means that you should be armed and prepared to return fire to suppressive fire or however you need to abolish the threat so that you can care for those that have been injured you may have seen movies where a hero kills a villain instantly by throwing a knife at them or maybe even shooting them with a gun. This is a highly improbable event. I've actually read where having a gunshot or being shot with a bullet is pretty much the same amount of force in terms of stopping power if you're if you're not hit in, of course, in the heart or the brain mm-hmm. as having a 10-pound weight dropped on you from the height of a few inches. And indeed, that sort of makes sense because we see... So many times, if you look at these cop shows and things like that, that somebody actually gets shot, and they just run away, or they keep coming. They keep going. Yeah.
2: And you think, well, how many bullets is it going to take to make the person fall on the ground?
1: That's right. So don't be surprised if somebody who gets stabbed walks around with a knife in their back, at least for a while, or, or gets shot even. You have to really be hit in a in major artery, areas, the heart, right? you, know, you know, really have to have a central body mass through the head. shot through the head to really stop somebody. If you're the medic, of course, and somebody is in this situation, they've been shot or they, they have a knife in them and they're walking around. I mean, have them lie down immediately because at one point or another, they'll lose enough blood that they will faint from right. loss of blood and they'll fall onto a hard surface. They'll hurt themselves
2: even more
1: yes that's right now where there's one injury there could be more so always have an emt shears or a bandage scissors to cut through clothing and determine that you only have the one wound now if the bleeding from the obvious wound is the most is serious but there are other wounds that are less serious of course you should attend to the most serious wound first we talked about dealing with hemorrhages before
2: let me just say one thing Every drop of blood that you keep in the person is another drop of blood carrying oxygen to the vital organs. So that is your goal. Stop the bleeding.
1: That's right. Now, of course, in normal times, standard protocol says you should not remove a knife or other impaled object simply because it can cause the hemorrhage to worsen. And of course, in these cases...
2: The knife could be up against an artery that might be bleeding somewhat, but if you remove the dam that's holding back the water, then it may begin to gush. So there is a logical um, rationale behind not removing these objects until you can get to the hospital. But, of course, we are talking about situations where there may not be hospitals too. That's right. Just so you know the difference, folks. We're not telling you to remove every single knife that you see the second you, you have it in your hand.
1: That's right. What I think it's important is important to do, know is that in normal times, you know, you shouldn't, of course, push a knife in, further in or you shouldn't remove it, but you should pack around it and see if you can apply some pressure from the sides. Protect it. To to protect it. So that's one thing that you should do. Now, of course, normal times is not what you and I talk about.
2: Not generally. You know,
1: this strategy I just mentioned is going to give you time to get the patient to the hospital, but what if there are no hospitals? And, you know, you're going to have to transport you're a victim to your base camp in a survival setting, and you're going to have to remove the knife. Can't person can't walk around with it for At the that rest of the right,
2: right, exactly. Let me just give a little hint uh, a couple of things that might be useful to pack around it uh, maybe towels or clothing. If you have uh, something that's uh, like a jacket or a couple pairs of jeans, something that's bulky. Um, You might even be able to uh, take pillows, small small pillows, not necessarily the big ones, and pack around it. If you have some duct tape, you can wrap around the stuffing or padding that you've placed and make sure it doesn't move during the transportation of the patient to the hospital. You want to stabilize that padding so that stabilizes the knife. You don't want to move it.
1: Exactly, exactly. And and so basically you, your your goal then is to get the patient to a setting where you have control right. and where the bulk of your materials are. Exactly. You know, so you have to have, of course, plenty of dressings. You want to have tourniquets. You want to have clotting agents ready for use. Wounds from firearms are more variable, obviously, than knife wounds and much more problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, a stabbing incident is an example of a penetrating inf- injury but it's unlikely to perforate through the body
2: exactly well there's a limited depth I mean if you have a large knife it may go in as, as long as the blade is but most people don't carry around 8 or 10 inch blades Exactly. You know, they carry three five six inch blades so that is going to be your limitation of the depth a bullet there is no limitation
1: Right, it, it is limited limited by its velocity, velocity and right. mass. Exactly. Basically the kinetic energy, remember we we talked about this just recently, yep. that the kinetic energy, the energy that, that the bullet transfers to the body when it strikes it is the mass of the of the bullet times the velocity, but the velocity squared. And so the the speed of the bullet is the most important, major. right, most most major aspect of the damage that's going to be caused. And by and the way, it that could
2: move around. Right. It's not necessarily gonna go on a straight line.
1: By the way, that formula I mentioned is divided by two. We're divided <laughs> by two, yes. <laughs> All right. So therefore what I'm trying to get at is that a bullet wound can easily go through the body, depending yep. on on what it hits. Mm-hmm. It's important and and the type of bullet, and it's important to look for exit wounds. And these could be even larger than the entry wound, not always, but many times they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, rifle rounds have a higher chance of passing through the body because of their higher velocity, and the handguns, however, have a tendency to deform more, and that slows them down, but cause more damage because they become wider as they sort of mushroom course, you would need to expect dirt and clothes, other debris, to have been pushed in the wound by the bullet, right? Sure. Uh, or even a knife would do that. In other words, these wounds are dirty.
2: Dirty, 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 dirty.
1: dirty. dirty. So you might need <laughs> antibiotics. Make sure you have a good supply of antibiotics. We've talked about that, fish antibiotics, things like that, uh, to prevent infection. Now, uh, gunshot and some knife wounds can cause significant trauma to soft and bony tissues, and it's one place where, and one place where it's going to be life-threatening is in the chest where rib fractures, lung damage, and tearing of the heart muscles or major blood vessels is likely. So let's talk about let's talk about rib fractures to begin with. You've got 12 pairs of ribs. They're numbered from top to bottom. These are sometimes characterized as true ribs, false ribs, and floating ribs. Your true ribs are from your shoulder down, I guess, or, or clavicle down The ribs in back of the clavicle start at number one, and they go down. So ribs one through seven connect via flexible connective tissue called cartilage to the breastbone. The false ribs actually don't connect to the breastbone, but they connect to the cartilage of the seventh rib. So they sort of go straight up. To the 7th rib. Right, the curves. Right. Now, the 11th and 12th ribs actually float in front. They have no connection to the breastbone whatsoever. Now, all ribs, however, connect to the spine and back. Mm-hmm. Ribs are also connected to each other by muscles called intercostal muscles. And rib fractures, usually caused by trauma, uh, most often involve the middle ribs. If a rib is broken, several signs and symptoms are going to be likely to appear. You can suspect a rib fracture if you note uh, a painful area, sometimes with a bump or a dent even, at the site of impact, increased pain with uh, breathing or movement, bruising of the chest or the back Mm -hmm. over the ribs, a grating sensation or sound when fractured bone ends sort of rub against each other. Now, you can use a stethoscope over the area. You'll really be be able to see it, to smell it, to smell it. I know a rib fracture when I smell it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When you pretty, hear it. That
2: was pretty funny.
1: Hear it. Okay. Uh, and also people will be splinting, which when you splint, that that's, you're tensing your muscles in an effort to decrease pain because of the movement of those muscles.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now in uncomplicated single fractures, there's often no change in the appearance of the chest wall itself. I mean, in the past. We used to treat these with a binder or a rib belt, I think is what it was called. And this method actually res- relieves some discomfort, but it's actually thought now to cause much more harm than good because it prevents the ability to take deep breaths.
2: And you can get pneumonia.
1: That's right. right. You have to fully inflate your lungs to avoid pneumonia. The areas you of lungs to... which are collapsed. Right. You need, are to, bring... Big trouble.
2: You need to bring air way down deep in your lungs guys yes
1: let's all take a deep breath right now
2: <gasps>
1: all right <sighs> see you've just inflated the <laughs> absolute edges or borders of your lungs which you may not do unless you actually are exercise doing exercise your lungs yeah, take you deep
2: breaths that's what they do in yoga everyone that's take right. a yoga class today
1: don't breathe so deeply <laughs> that you get dizzy though <laughs> Now,
2: Slow deeper.
1: So what do they do now? Some practitioners will place the arm on the affected side on a sling and they'll put padding between the arm and the ribs so that there's protection. And that actually gives people, some conf- the victim, some confidence that you know, that they'll be okay. They're going to be very, very sensitive in that area. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, the patient could hold a pillow against the rib to support themselves during, uh, let's say, deep breathing or coughing. Ibuprofen, cold packs, these are helpful for pain. Mm -hmm. Uh, You might be surprised uh, to know that your patient will probably sleep more peacefully lying with the injured side down because it provides a little bit of support. Now, more serious or multiple rib fractures will present with possibly major symptoms like rapid shallow breathing, a rapid heart rate, a bloody cough. That's known as hemoptysis, H-E-M-O-P-T-Y-S-I-S. Uh, an irregular appearance at the side of the injury, as, as I mentioned before, and decreased or unusual movement of the chest wall on the affected side. If the lung is collapsed, that side of the chest wall is not going to inflate. If you have multiple rib fractures, they're usually going to occur in a roll in a row. This injury is called a flail chest and it can be identified in a specific way by placing one hand on each side of the chest and observing the movement while during breathing. The uninjured side rises during inhaling as it normally would, but paradoxically or unusually the flail injury area, those, those ribs that have been, the segments of ribs that have been broken will actually fall, they'll go in. That's because the loose rib segments are pulled into the chest cavity when you inhale and the lung as a result is usually bruised and gets less oxygen to the body and without in a flail chest without mod- uh, really modern respiratory support and perhaps sometimes surgical intervention to stabilize those ribs, uh, your patient is unlikely to survive. Uh, rib fractures are most dangerous if a jagged bone punctures organs in the chest, such as the lung. Now, air- Those are like
2: their own little knives.
1: Sure, exactly. right.
2: Piercing, and it's like having a bunch of fragments of broken glass in there, really. Absolutely. They and- can poke poke other things
1: and that's bad, air that enters the chest cavity then through the puncture, it's staying in the lung, the air, the air goes into the actual chest cavity that holds the lung, and this can causes a condition known as a pneumothorax. As more air fills the chest with every breath, there's going to be more pressure in that cavity that's going to prevent the lung from filling up with air again. Right. Now, although a person with a very small pneumothorax will complain of pain with breathing or some shortness of breath, the condition sometimes resolves on its own. The air absorbs. Uh, of course, some oxygen would be helpful. It, however, could progress to something called a tension pneumothorax, usually caused by significant trauma or penetrating wounds. A, a trauma that wouldn't be penetrating would be, let's say, if you were hit by a bullet but had body armor. Right. And so, but that could fracture your ribs. The ribs could go into the lung.
2: Right, but nothing went inside. Yeah. Exactly. The skin wasn't pierced.
1: Yes, exactly. So this, in this circumstance, besides the symptoms that I mentioned previously, the victim is going to have an increasing sign of lack of oxygen. That's called cyanosis. The lips and the fingertips, other areas, are going to become vaguely bluish. Right. That the veins on the neck will be distended. There'll be signs of shock. There'll be uh, sometimes the trachea. The, your voice box will actually move to the side opposite where the injury was because mm-hmm. it's filling up with air in, in the injured side like
2: a balloon. and moving
1: things over right, to the right. side. Now, like if, a
2: balloon inflating.
1: right? Now, v-
2: visually, you can imagine that's happening.
1: Right. If a lung collapses and you use a stethoscope, you'll either hear crackling noises like Rice Krispies or sometimes you won't hear any, any breath sounds at all on the affected side. Now, with the tension pneumothorax from a rib fracture, you might consider something called emergency needle decompression. Now, this is something you should only attempt if it's absolutely clear that's what the patient has, and the patient's going to die without action taken on their behalf. Now, to do this, what you're going to do is you're going to use gloves, you're going to clean the area of the chest on the affected side, and you're going to do it in a specific place. You're going to do it above the third rib. If you go down from the clavicle
2: start from the, right start from the clavicle and right in the middle countdown. of clavicle
1: yeah go to the mid clavicular line go down and it's going to be pretty much midway between the center of the collarbone and the nipple and probably one inch or maybe a max maybe two inches from the border of the breastbone on that side you would use a 14 gauge decompression needle that's what i think you have in your yes, kit we right do. yep uh and you enter the skin just above the rib because the blood vessels nerves and all that travel just below the rib. So you want to enter just above the third rib and you want to enter it at a 90 degree angle. You're going to go deep enough. The needle should be probably about three inches long. Go deep enough to hear a pop and a, s- a hiss will probably start as air starts passing through right. it. You're going to hear a hiss
2: just like popping a balloon.
1: Right. And this should allow the lung to inflate these, um, Decompression needles are actually come with a catheter, basically a tube, plastic tube that is fits as a sleeve over the on needle. On the
2: outside of the needle. Right. And
1: so once that happens, and you you know you see that air is coming out, then you take the needle out and you leave the catheter in.
2: Right, it's like having an empty tube in there.
1: There you go, and that allows air to escape. Now, many are taught to place a valve of some sort, mm-hmm. sometimes called the flutter valve, over the catheter once placed. Now, this is meant to prevent air from returning to the lung cavity. Now, there are, are vented chest seals that are useful, like Asherman and Hyphen and things like that, that would also have the, the benefit, not only would they allow the catheter to be kept in place,
0: right. but they also, have,
1: they also have this little valve that allows air to go out of the lung, but not to go back in. Right. So this might be a good good thing to do. As a matter of fact, you definitely need it if there's a penetrating trauma because you already have a hole there. And with a penetrating trauma like a stab or a gunshot wound, that can cause a pneumothorax attention pneumothorax. They call that a sucking chest wound in plain English. And in this case you use a chest seal like the Asherman or hyphen, fox seal or other others. Vented is the key. Yeah, vent a vented vent, The chest word in.
2: vented right. on those chest seals is the key. And you may need to put one of these in the front and one of these in the back. Right. Again, we're we're not ignoring the exit wound that's right in this situation either.
1: Exactly. Your goal in general is to provide a way for the air to escape from the chest cavity, but not to go back in. Right. And there are many commercial vented chest seals available. You could but if you don't have that, you could improvise one by taking a four to six inch square of plastic wrap or other airtight material. Some people have even suggested a use, credit card, but I think that's too small. Honestly. Uh, that
2: doesn't sound right. Yeah. Well, plus, that doesn't seem. seem um, I, I can't imagine that making a flap. A plastic bag, Ziploc bags, um, plastic wrap is probably too thin. Um, but I would say a Ziploc bag would have enough uh, thickness.
1: Right. Exactly. Now. So, you have three sides that are taped. You have the open and a fourth side that's not taped, and that serves as the valve and allows air to escape and the mm-hmm. lung to inflate while not letting black air back in. Now, you have to realize in normal times, there is much more to be done. You place a chest tube, you have to put a suction system in. Inflammatory or bloody fluid is likely to oxygen. accumulate in many lung wounds, right? You could, you could possibly rig, I guess, a drainage system to prevent too much fluid from preventing adequate air passage. Uh, a rubber tube connected to a jar just before the patient may perform this duty poorly, by my say, by using gravity, but it's not going to be as effective as suction systems and respiratory support available at the local hospital. It's important to accept that attention tension pneumothorax will be difficult to recover from in austere settings. During the Civil War, chest wounds carried a 72% death rate. Be realistic in your expectations. Okay, let's bring Jim Rawls back. Jim Rawls is an internationally recognized authority on family disaster preparedness and survivalism. He was formerly a U.S. Army intelligence officer. He's now a fiction and nonfiction author as well as a rancher. He's a lecturer and the founder and senior editor at survivalblog.com, the Internet's first blog on preparedness And, you know, we had Jim on not too long ago to talk survival, but today we're going to talk about his latest book, Land of Promise, and the novel idea of a Christian homeland. Jim, thanks for coming back on. The reason why we have you on today, besides to hear words of wisdom, which you always have plenty of, is to talk about your latest book, which is called Land of Promise. Promise, And it's, I think, a very unique book. There are a lot of threats to liberty, uh, both us as Americans and Christians, and we're confronted with, I think, challenges every day. What do you think?
0: Oh, I agree. Uh, That's why I really felt strongly convicted to write that novel. It's both a think piece on individual liberty and a call to to action uh, to encourage the establishment of some Christian homeland nations around the world. They really are needed. There's so much Christian persecution going on right now, and what are needed are some nations that can can both physically accommodate refugees and, more importantly, to simply issue passports to refugees so that they'll be able to uh, to move along to third countries. One of the problems that a lot of people that are under persecution in Islamic countries they don't have the way, any way to get out of the country they're in.
1: It's amazing because that country doesn't want them there, yet there really is no mechanism that, for them to leave and go somewhere else that they, they might be more welcome and, and be more safe. So they're actually in a, in a situation where their lives may be in danger in a land that doesn't want them, but that they have no legal way of leaving.
0: Right. So uh, that's what Land of Promise is all about. It's about the establishment of a fictional country about uh, 30 years in the future. It's called the Alemi Republic, and that's a little triangle of land that's currently disputed that sits uh, between the borders of South Sudan, Kenya, and Ethiopia. That little patch of land is is basically a piece of scrub land that's really good for nothing more than seal grazing. And I chose that piece of land in the fictional storyline because there are very few places on earth that any government is going to want to give up. The basic rule of every sovereign nation is you never grant any sovereign territory. If you look at recent history with what happened to the former Yugoslavia, when that fell apart, there was a free-for-all, and governments really tried to avoid that kind of situation. So I think it would only be a piece of territory that is in contest. In this case, it's a long-standing territorial dispute between South Sudan and Kenya, and I showed as being kind of the pretty way out for both nations so that they could resolve the border conflict, but yet not lose face in the world of nation-states. You wouldn't want to lose face and suffer any kind of diplomatic repercussions So it's best that it would be a a disputed territory.
1: There are very few places that would be like that really anywhere. You've taken us down, you know, usually familiar roads, uh, you know, with locations in Canada and the U.S. in your Patriots series. And it's sort of interesting that you were able to figure out this little Area of land that might actually be uh, up for grabs. How did they actually obtain this land? How did the, the founders of the L- Ilemi Republic obtain this nope. land? Did they buy it? Did they.
0: No, it was, in- it was granted to them in the fictional storyline. Uh, basically, they approached the presidents of both Kenya and South Sudan, who, in, both in the novel and in real life, are Christians. And approached them and said, well, here you have this intractable dispute between your two countries. A wonderful diplomatic way of ending it would be to simply grant that territory instead. And that way you wouldn't have to be granting it to your neighbor and lose face diplomatically. It would provide a wonderful place of refuge for Christian uh, refugees, as well as create a huge influx of cash into the region, that would benefit both countries, that, uh, both of the neighboring countries, both South Sudan and Kenya, because of the massive infrastructure that would have to be built in this very remote area. There would be, have to be roads built and airports and pipelines and power transmission lines and, and the whole works. So it would, it would all that money pouring in to create a new nation, it would definitely benefit the economies of the neighboring nations.
1: So who is allowed to live in the Alemi Republic? Uh, Germany wants to know if it accepts Syrian refugees.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would be designed for Christian refugees from all nations. So rather than uh, having any divisiveness over race or any uh, divisiveness over politics, the only real uh, defining factor would be someone's religious faith so islamics would not be invited but it's designed as a refuge for christians and for messianic jews i think it's realistic to think that a nation could be formed along those lines simply because there's so many christians looking for a nation of refuge because this fictional nation would also be a nation without any taxes a truly libertarian nation it' would be very desirable for people to obtain a second passport for that nation, and that's what could finance virtually the whole budget of the nation would be selling passports to people who are not refugees, but for people who are looking for tax freedom.
1: The reason why I'm so interested in the book is because I've actually been thinking about this for a while now, and I didn't think, and I've never heard anybody else really talk about it until, I saw your book. I think for a lot of your readers, it's going to be like a V8 moment, like they're going to smack their forehead and say, I could have had a Christian homeland, you know, and I, <laughs> I, I'll i tell you that in and of itself, just the Christian homeland is pretty novel. But, but the Alemi Republic is also a libertarian republic. Am I correct?
0: Yes, it's a nation with no taxes whatsoever and very few regulations. It's as close to a true libertarian nation as you can come, where there's no police, no prisons, no standing army, there's just a citizen's militia, and every adult citizen will have the power of arrest. It will be a self-policing country. And only major crimes would be punishable by law. Anything lesser would be just handled by church discipline or by social shunning. I think it's a a realistic approach, especially for a frontier nation, because a small frontier nation is organized in such a way that everyone has to depend on their neighbors because it's so lightly populated in such a remote area and where people are are dependent upon each other. People have to live in a way where they can get along, and if they can't get along, they're simply going to have to leave the country because they won't be able to exist in terms of they're you know, earning their daily bread.
1: Now, speaking of not getting along, in, in your book, there's a worldwide Islamic caliphate, which I assume does not get along with the Islamic Republic. We're heading there. I mean, I think it's prescient, your idea of the, the worldwide Islamic caliphate, because I, I think we're heading there, although I think we're going to have two competing caliphates, one Sunni and one Shiite. Right.
0: How's your caliphate born? Uh, well, I I took the the literary license of creating a new Islamic group that I refer to as the thirdists where essentially the Sunnis and the Shiites agreed to disagree and bury the hatchet temporarily for the sake of creating a caliphate so that with their combined forces and not fighting amongst themselves which they're so good at they would be able to actually make a caliphate happen now Again, that's just literary license. I don't actually predict that. But if that were to happen, it would allow a global caliphate to be formed much sooner than uh, would normally happen. So for the sake of making a a dramatic story and putting it in the near future, I actually showed them as bearing the hatchet, as it were.
1: What's it like to live under the Islamic caliphate?
0: Well, basically the same, where Christians are treated as as second-class citizens, they're subjected to a very heavy uh, tax. It's called a jizya. Uh, Under the jizya tax, uh, you you lose about 20% of your income. And anyone who is under that form of diminitude, they have no political voice whatsoever. They have very few job prospects. And they're heavily taxed because that jizya tax is in addition uh, to any other normal uh, municipal tax. I show life under the caliphate as being very brutal and repressive for anyone who is not Islamic. Under the global Islamic Caliphate, the living conditions and the standard, the standing up, the standard of living for Christians will be gradually declining year after year after year, to the point where they're basically no better than slaves. And some are slaves, especially women who are treated as sex slaves. The
1: current Caliphate, ISIS, uh, has as its goal the ex- extinction of Christianity. Is that the goal? of your Islamic caliphate?
0: Yes, in the long term. But in the short term, they recognize the technical skills that a lot of Christians have, and they also look at basically everyone on the planet as uh, beasts of burden, where they're an asset to be exploited before they're exterminated. So it's something analogous to what happened in Nazi Germany with the Jews.
1: Almost exactly uh, what you would say. And the conditions there are not dissimilar to what some Christians are living in in some Islamic countries today, as a matter of fact, minus the jizya.
0: There's already already a a jizya tax in a lot of countries, and there's a lot of (laughs) systematic persecution. Uh, There's the whole works. We're just seeing it on a small scale now. The frightening prospect is to see a global caliphate where, say, two-thirds of the world's population and three-quarters of the world's land mass, is under Islamic control. The other nations would have to be beholden to the caliphate because the caliphate would also control virtually all of the world's oil supply. So they, they basically would have to kowtow to the caliphate.
1: Given that we Christians have a little patch of land as a homeland, and the caliphate is so large and so extensive, does it still have designs upon the Alemi Republic?
0: Yes, in fact, that's why I showed the beginning stages of a a war against the Islam, against the LMA Republic in the first book. And it's just the first book of a, a planned six-novel series. Part of that was for the sake of drama and part to show that with modern fifth-generation warfare, even a very small nation can defend itself quite admirably in the face of a much larger opponent. Cyber warfare and... Uh, resistance warfare. In the 21st century, we'll see very mismatched opponents with very surprising outcomes.
1: Obviously, the Lemmy Republic doesn't have squadrons of fighter jets, am I right? Or it's basically everyone has small arms?
0: Not uh, not collectively. And in in fact, um, one of the things that I showed was uh, private ownership of things like a military aircraft, and artillery pieces, and tanks, and armored personnel carriers, they actually are surprisingly affordable, especially if you're using 20th century technology military surplus vehicles. It's not beyond the the realm of fiction to think that if you had a country where it was legal to do so, that people would actually be able to arm themselves quite heavily, that would make that citizen's militia a very formidable force.
1: Well, I think that Land of Promise sounds like a very promising novel, and I want to make sure that they get a copy of Land of Promise. Where could they find it?
0: Well, if they just go to my website at survivalblog.com, they'll see an ordering link in the upper right-hand corner where you see the book cover of Land of Promise, or they can also order it from Amazon.com. It's available both as an ebook and as a print-on-demand paperback.
1: Well, make sure that you go to survivalblog.com, to get your book because you'll get a lot more things to think about besides just the novel if you go there there's lots of great articles a lot of terrific information there and Jim thank you so much for taking the time to
0: visit with uh, us today thank you Joe and may God bless your listeners
2: well thank you Dr. Bones and Jim Rawls for that interesting and educational interview
1: This week we're representing our products at the International SHOT Show, which is a show mostly geared towards the firearms industry in which we are one of the very, very few first aid companies, lots of companies there with material that make wounds, but we are one of the few companies there that will help you heal wounds. And we brought an entire line of bleeding kits for ranges, hunters, law enforcement, schools, churches, just about any type of situation, and we have been really encouraged by the warm reception that we received there, but we are out of town, and so we're going to go back to some of our previous questions from Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast, where we serve as members of the Expert Council, and talk about some questions that listeners have, and see if we can connect with a couple of different topics that might be of interest to you. And here we have some vignettes from the Survival Podcast Expert Council. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, and co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on the way. Today's question for the Expert Council comes from Chad, who writes, Are there limits to safely consume food-grade diatomaceous earth? I've heard diatomaceous earth is good for detoxifying the body, so we mix a little, one tablespoon or so, in soups and gravies from time to time, but I've read that too much silica may harm the kidneys. How much is too much? I'm about 240 pounds and my wife's about 108 pounds soaking wet, so I'm thinking the occasional spoon of diatomaceous earth into food is well within the realm of being safe. But could there be any ill effects from consuming diatomaceous earth, such as diarrhea or constipation? I understand to not breathe it in, but are there any other concerns? We also sprinkle a little into our long-term stored pasta buckets, just as a precaution against any creepy crawlies. About a teaspoon in the bottom, another teaspoon or so in the middle, and one near the top of our buckets. Then, of course, store the bucket in a cool, dark place, and we use first in, first out with everything. A huge thank you to Jack and Doc Bones. I found the survival medicine handbook to be very useful. I keep a copy sealed up in a five-gallon bucket with our over-the-counter medical supplies, so it would be very easy to grab the bucket and take it if ever needed. The freshest medicines go into the bucket, and the older bottles get taken out and put into the bathroom cabinet to get used up as needed. Chad, first thanks for the kind words and support. Diatomaceous earth is composed of the defossilized remains of phytoplankton, a type of hard-shelled algae. Food-grade diatomaceous earth is 0.5% crystalline silica, as opposed to 1-3% to 3% silica, which is used in swimming pool filters and as a filler in paints, plastics, and cements, among other things. The industrial-grade version is not for human ingestion. Both the food-grade and industrial-grade diatomaceous earth are not good to inhale, as you mentioned. Food-grade diatomaceous earth is added to stores of grains to eliminate bugs that might eat or contaminate them, so you're using that correctly. Uh, they also use it for parasite control, livestock as a dewormer, and it's generally considered as safe for ingestion by the FDA. Now, many people believe that food-grade diatomaceous earth has various health benefits, and some recommend the regular ingestion of food-grade diatomaceous earth as good for whatever hails you. Well, the truth is that any substance that is claimed to be a cure-all probably isn't, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily harmful either. Diatomaceous earth might have untoward effects in some, however, such as constipation and bloating. But the way you're taking it, Chad, is probably just fine, except for one thing. Instead of mixing it with food, you should take diatomaceous earth at least an hour away from meals or taking any medications. The reason for this is that diatomaceous earth absorbs nutrients from the food in your stomach and may lessen the effects of medicine you're on. It's best to drink it with water or some flavored drink if you hate the chalky taste. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor and subscribe to our website, doomandbloom.net, and our YouTube channel at drbonesnurseamy, or follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a coupon code for a discount on any of Nurse Amy's medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Now, here's a question about the use of food-grade diatomaceous earth, something you might not have heard of. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, and co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on the way. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Chad, who writes, Are there limits to safely consume food-grade diatomaceous earth? I've heard diatomaceous earth is good for detoxifying the body, so we mix a little, one tablespoon or so, in soups and gravies from time to time but i've read that too much silica may harm the kidneys how much is too much i'm about 240 pounds and my wife's about 108 pounds soaking wet so i'm thinking the occasional spoon of diatomaceous earth into food is well within the realm of being safe but could there be any ill effects from consuming diatomaceous earth such as diarrhea or constipation i understand to not breathe it in but are there any other concerns We also sprinkle a little into our long-term stored pasta buckets just as a precaution against any creepy crawlies. About a teaspoon in the bottom, another teaspoon or so in the middle, and one near the top of our buckets. Then, of course, store the bucket in a cool, dark place, and we use first in, first out with everything. A huge thank you to Jack and Doc Bones. I found the survival medicine handbook to be very useful. I keep a copy sealed up in a five-gallon bucket with our over-the-counter medical supplies so it would be very easy to grab the bucket and take it if ever needed. The freshest medicines go into the bucket, and the older bottles get taken out and put into the bathroom cabinet to get used up as needed. Chad, first, thanks for the kind words and support. Diatomaceous earth is composed of the defossilized remains of phytoplankton, a type of hard-shelled algae. Food-grade diatomaceous earth is 0.5% crystalline silica, as opposed to 1-3% to silica, which is used in swimming pool filters and as a filler in paints, plastics, and cements, among other things. The industrial-grade version is not for human ingestion. Both the food-grade and industrial-grade diatomaceous earth are not good to inhale, as you mentioned. Food-grade diatomaceous earth is added to stores of grains to eliminate bugs that might eat or contaminate them, so you're using that correctly. Uh, They also use it for parasite control, livestock as a dewormer, and it's generally considered as safe for ingestion by the FDA. Now, many people believe that food-grade diatomaceous earth has various health benefits, and some recommend the regular ingestion of food-grade diatomaceous earth as good for whatever hails you. Well, the truth is that any substance that is claimed to be a cure-all probably isn't, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily harmful either. Diatomaceous earth might have untoward effects in some, however, such as constipation and bloating, but the way you're taking it, Chad, is probably just fine, except for one thing. Instead of mixing it with food, you should take diatomaceous earth at least an hour away from meals or taking any medications. The reason for this is that diatomaceous earth absorbs nutrients from the food in your stomach and may lessen the effects of medicine you're on. It's best to drink it with water or some flavored drink if you hate the chalky taste. This is Joe Alden MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor and subscribe to our website, doomandbloom.net, and our YouTube channel at Amy, Or follow us on Twitter, at Prepper Show. And don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a coupon code for a discount on any of Nurse Amy's medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Here's one about a common problem relating to staph infections. Hey, this is Joe Alton, M.D., also known as Dr. Bones, of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find close to 800 articles on medical preparedness for any disaster. Also the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook. This week's question comes from Jesse, who asks, What's our offense and defense against staph infections if for some reason we don't have access to antibiotics? My four-year-old son, who's in seemingly great health, twice... In the past year, unfortunately, has been infected with staph on his face. The first time last winter, he had a cold, blew his nose too much, got irritated, and soon infected. The second time just happened recently when he was scratched by a neighbor kid on the nose and eye, and scratches soon grew into sores. Both times, we tried everything out of the herbal antibiotic books for weeks without success. Both times, we eventually went to a conventional doctor to get antibiotics. They worked overnight. seems as though our son is susceptible to this certain strain of staph, Any advice would be appreciated. Jesse, certainly infectious organisms are an issue for many in good times as well as bad. Your son's history seems to indicate, as you mentioned, a tendency towards a particular strain of staph. It would be very useful to know which strain it is, so consider asking your doctor to send the specimen from one of the sores to the lab. By doing a culture of the specimen, you'll be able not only to identify the exact species of microbe involved, but also What antibiotics kill it? It's always a good idea to consider all the tools in the woodshed, so I'm glad you tried some herbal antibiotics. Unfortunately, they don't always work. The experience usually varies significantly from individual to individual. As you've gone through a number of herbal antibiotics without success, you might just have to rely on a supply of antibiotic drugs, which you should always have in your medical storage. Many of these are available in veterinary form, and years ago, I was indeed the first physician to write about fish antibiotics and other veterinary antibiotics like avian antibiotics as a survival option. Ordinarily, you could just take amoxicillin or cephalexin, fishmox or fish felix, to deal with most skin infections. Unfortunately, because methicillin-resistant staph aureus, MRSA, causes more than one-half of all staph infections in most communities, penicillins or cephalosporins might just not be enough. Some experts recommend combination therapy, adding clindamycin or a quinolone like Cipro to your therapy. Others suggest sulfa drugs, doxycycline, or other combinations. As data accumulates, clindamycin may indeed wind up being the preferred outpatient antibiotic therapy over time. This is because different areas exhibit different levels of resistance to certain antibiotics. In the meantime, consider these common sense precautions to help lower your child's risk of developing staph infection. Make sure you wash your hands. Careful hand washing is your best defense against germs. Do this briskly for at least 15 to 30 seconds. Sing happy birthday twice, for example. That would give you a good idea about how long that would be. Then dry them with a disposable towel. Use another towel to turn off the faucet. If your hands aren't visibly dirty... You can use a hand sanitizer containing at least 62% alcohol. If they are dirty, then you probably should stick with soap and water. Keep cuts and abrasions clean and covered with sterile dry bandages until they heal. Those open sores easily get infected. Pus from infected sores often contain staph, like what your son has, and keeping wounds covered might help keep the bacteria from spreading. Avoid sharing any personal items such as towels, sheets, razors, clothing, Don't share your razor with your 4-year-old child, in other words. Staph infections can spread on objects as well as from person to person. Now, always wash clothing and bedding in hot water. Staph bacteria can survive on clothing and bedding that isn't properly washed to get bacteria off clothing and sheets. you got to wash them in hot water whenever you can. Also, use bleach on any bleach-safe materials. Drying in the dryer is better than air drying. But staph bacteria, they're pretty sturdy, and they could even survive the clothes dryer. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Hey, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and our Facebook group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Also, our new podcast is called American Survival Radio. You can check out our website at americansurvivalradio.com Our survival medicine podcast is also available on blogtalkradio.com. Remember that our opinions pertain to post-apocalyptic settings, survival scenarios, and the like. In normal times, seek conventional and standard medical care whenever it's available.
2: This has (laughs) been the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and, of course, Jim Rawls. We will see you again next Saturday or Sunday every week. Until the end. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.